If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week, my guest is Diane Williams, who'll be reading her two most recent stories from the paper, as well as talking a bit about them and her other work. Reviewing her collected stories in the LRB in 2019, none of them more than four pages long, Angie Malenko said that Diane Williams's fiction is full of funny, libidinal and invigorating enigmas and pays attention to language at its most fine-grained. Hello, Diane, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, I'm really happy to be here. I thought we could maybe listen to you reading gladly first, and then we could have our conversation as a kind of intermission, as it were, and then finish by listening to Harriet Mounts. Gladly. He is a figure I once engaged with for years, amid scenes with nearly religious significance attached to them. And by chance... This Saturday I had witnessed him stepping away from a park path and stooping beneath the leaf cover, only to put his hand against the tree trunk. He smiled when he saw me, but when I reached him he was speechless and sour, and then he proceeded on his way headlong. If only he had said, You come with me. I fell back, stood at a distance, But let us leave a famous man for a moment. Two objects that had been abandoned, surely through some fault of their own, showed up in the border grass. And detritus is common around here, but these two items were an arousing color and brand new enough to engage my interest. The clean canvas, all-star high tops were perhaps my size. And then, as if this footwear could somehow stay the same while it changed, the shoes showed up as ruined goods. One of the pair had a long rip at the heel. Well, where I was is where I often go for the sights, for a walk at day's end, for deep breaths, or just to listen to the faint clicking for how my own feet smack at the path. A boy of about five or six was picking up handfuls of nuts that I thought were meant for the squirrels. He was inspecting the ground and most efficiently scavenging, stuffing his pockets, and repeatedly patting his large jammed pockets. He'll be known in later life for his gluttony or for his enterprise. What am I, I wonder, dear God, now best known for? Your stories seem more interested in asking questions than giving answers, even if the title of Gladly looks like an answer to an unspoken question. At the end of that story, as we've just heard, the narrator asks, what am I? I wonder, dear God, now best known for. And I wonder, is that a question you ever ask yourself? Is that something you wonder or worry about? 
Yes, uh, I wonder, and I worry, and I feel disconnected from myself, sad to say. I think of myself often as she. What does she think? What will she do? And I pay tribute to her, or I find fault. And I see that I have these exorbitant goals, and I'm very surprised, more often bewildered, because it's very hard to do what she wants me to do. So that I and she, that's almost... Is that almost as if you feel like one of your own narrators? That almost sounds as if the author-narrator relationship has been flipped round, that the the narrator worrying what the author wants, so who the, the I and the she. Well, that's very an interesting point. I think you're right. So I'm I'm in the story and I'm watching her. Yes, it's it's. Uh, I mean, and I'm usually also eager to know. Or wish, you know, I wish, I look to her, what are you thinking? What Don't you have a good idea about this? You know, you're supposed to be the leader. I mean, it's almost as if I'm in an argument with her to lead my life better than I feel I'm leading it. <laughs> when, when writing a story, do you set yourself constraints or, or do they find their form natu- naturally, in inverted commas? What what I want to say is there are no constraints because I have no access. I mean, it's all constraints. No form comes naturally. Nearly every composition has been produced by this try, try, try again method and by hoping that chance or accident will lead to some exciting language. That's the project. Think of your characters' names. Do do they come by accident? Does it, or do you, in deciding whether or not which characters have names and when they're she or he? Sort of. I wonder about in Tussle Rue. There's a character called Ruby, and is that partly for the rhyme? And where does the name Harriet Mounts come from? Uh huh. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a big decision at the start of a story whether I'm going to name people in it or not, and. There are good arguments for doing it and good arguments against it. So I have to think it through, and it's usually a toss of the coin at the beginning, and I'll, I might change my mind in the middle. I, I really enjoy fishing up names, though, and I love to name my characters. And Harriet Mounts, you mentioned, I can't remember where I found the Mounts, but when I found Mounts, I was very excited about it. And Ruby, uh, to go back to what what you were asking, I, I'm, I'm usually looking everywhere all the time for names. I look in bibliographies, I look in footnotes, and I, when I'm really stuck, I have an antique, uh, what shall we name the baby book that I turn to. Ruby, that you ask about, when you mentioned the rhyme, I thought, yes, you're right. And I'm sure that figured. But there was also something else. I was reading Iris Murdoch's uh, The Philosopher's Pupil, and she has some wonderful gem names for people in that book, Pearl and Ruby. And Ruby is especially enigmatic. And when I first found 
this name. I thought, oh, I love it and I love to say it. I love rubies, but I can't use it because, look, here it is in this book and Murdoch used it and now I can't use it. And I don't know why I thought that because suddenly I thought, well, I can use it, which seemed brilliant. So that's how that name came to be. But you're right about the rue and the ruby. In, in Gladly, a pair of shoes have an arousing colour. And that struck me as such a such a brilliant turn of phrase and so perfectly capturing the colour of a, a new pair of trainers or, or sneakers, sort of the erotics of shoe design and shoe marketing. I was wondering about, the, do those kinds of word combinations come to you as you're writing or, or do they come to you at other times and you, you save them up? Or, or are they part of a redrafting process? And I wonder if there was sort of an earlier draft of Gladly where the shoes were merely a bright colour and then going over it, you, you, you change the adjective. How does, how does that happen? Well, I thank you for the salute to the word. I was really pleased when I finally came up with that word. The passage was dead for far too long, and I, I had tried out. You're right, there were earlier attempts to find a description. I tried out a delicate pastel color, and I thought that was wonderful for a while. I I can't believe that I thought it was wonderful. And then uh, sky blue had a turn. I did see some new-looking abandoned shoes in Central Park and wondered if they might fit me. I mean, I, I, really, I circled them, stared, and gave it a lot of thought. <laughs> they were uh, paprika. I, I didn't touch them. And when thinking about your question, the word paprika came to mind. But it, it would not have worked at this story. It's a no- noisy word, but it would not have worked. And I'll tell you how I came to arousing because I remember this very well. I said aloud to myself, what I need here is an arousing color. So then I heard what I thought, and then I felt very lucky because I had my word. So that's interesting, so the idea of over, overhearing yourself, because I wondered that about another another phrase in the story that the shoes are brand new enough which is another wonderful phrase because if something's brand new it's like unique it it can't be a bit brand new or quite brand new but actually the brand new enough it sort of shouldn't be possible but it makes it much much more precise and I wonder it sounds like it could have been pulled out of an overheard conversation I wonder if you listen out for phrases like that and and whether or not the, the accidental way that people speak sort of becomes something new and more deliberate and and weirder when it gets written down. Yes, well, you're certainly right about that. The word arousing, I think, uh, rather, the word enough, I think, came from arousing, the sound. But I, I do listen out for phrases like that and sometimes get lucky. A store clerk as I leave a store, will say something, and I'll think, that's my story's ending. It's dangerous, though, to not be in the real world when one is in it. So this experience can't repeat too often. But 
brand new enough and arousing only saved the day. While I was struggling with what felt like unbudgeably dull language, I, it, it just went on for a very long time. And it pains me to think how long I kept on with sky blue and delicate pastel until I realized it was just, it was just so sad. <laughs> As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. That's that sort of overheard conversation thing. Is that, I mean, sort of with lockdown and with the pandemic, that we're, we're not getting to sort of overhear conversation in that way under these conditions? Well, is that, I walk that in the park, I walk in the park and I can hear screams and shouts and and actually people are quite noisy, even with their masks on. And also... I still have my own mutterings and my partner's mutterings. And um, when friends say things, especially if I'm talking to a colleague, I'll hear something wonderful and then we might have a have a little tussle over who gets to keep that little nugget. <laughs> do, you, do you write them down when, or do you, you yes, just remember? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they're very, away, they're yeah. very, it's quite precious. This material, yeah, that's what, almost but, like. But a some of it never, you, you, never yeah. sees the sees the page. It just can't be used. And I suppose it's almost like coming along, coming across these phrases. It's almost like coming across the pair of shoes, and you wonder if they are your size and if they fit you. These, yes, the shoes are like, good point. Are like these. Yes, very good point. And so if it's sticking with the shoes in the way that they they undergo a, a transformation, sort of impossible transformation, as if this footwear could somehow stay the same while it changed. And they show up as ruined goods, and it's a transformation that seems to me could only happen in words. It's it's sort of hard to visualize, though it that makes perfect sense. And it's sort of the opposite of plus ça change. And then it struck me it's the sort of thing that could happen in a dream. And I wonder, do you think your stories are like dreams, or are dreams like your stories? No, my stories are not like my dreams. Thank God. So I don't think they're dreamlike. I, I'm in flight from my nighttime dreams. Uh, the phrase, stay the same while it changed, is something that 
still causes a shudder. And I get confused thinking about it. And I think this experience is similar to that of a child approaching a parent, expecting a loving welcome and receiving a rebuke instead. The good mother, the bad mother, she looks the same. Yes, that does give a shudder, absolutely. You mentioned Iris Murdoch earlier and and the, the name Ruby coming from her novel. And I wonder how much you think of your stories as being in conversation or even argument with with other writers. Because the phrase, but let us leave a famous man for a moment, sounds like a brilliant riposte to let us now praise famous men. And you say of the boy collecting nuts that he'll be known in later life for his gluttony or for his enterprise. I mean, apart from that brilliant sort of pretend contrast between gluttony and enterprise, which two different words for the same thing. I wondered if it was a sort of an ironic riff on Wordsworth, the child is father of the man, that idea. Do you, do you have those famous men in mind when you're writing or is that chance? My answer to that one is I'm not in an argument with men. I mean, you mentioned Iris Murdoch and there probably is, I, I likely do have a different relation to my heroes that are men and heroes that are women. But my anger is hidden or I don't like to admit it. I would love to be in conversation with my heroes within a pretty fantasy in which I could hold my own. These sorts of very short stories sort of since the 90s have this phrase, this, I don't know, it seems to me unnecessary category, flash fiction sort of has been invented. And I wonder what you thought of of that idea, this category of flash fiction. I just, I hate it. I mean, I, I, I can't help myself. I just think, what is it good for? That's my relation to that. <laughs> and as a similar thing... Sort of this whole sort of need people seem to have to categorize things. Do you mind if people refer to your stories as prose poems? Yes, because I like stories, and I want to write stories. So the word, the words prose poems are just uh, together. They're, they're it's dead. They're dead. But story is an exciting thing to be engaged with. Presumably the other terms that get thrown around, like experimental, avant-garde, they're all, you'd, you'd reject all of those sorts of labels. And, well, I don't reject them. And... I think they're helpful to scholars and to marketeers, but they're just not categories that have any use for me. So should we talk a bit about Noon now, about your the journal or magazine that you edit? And it, it's come out every year since 2000. And I was wondering why, what was it, what were your reasons for starting it? What, what was the need you felt for a, to start the magazine? Then? Well, I started Noon uh, because I had been a fiction editor and then both publisher and editor of a little magazine called Story Quarterly when I lived in Illinois. I did that for 12 years. So it was uh, work I was accustomed to to doing. And when I moved to New York City, I couldn't keep that connection. And uh, Gordon Lish's quarterly had just closed. 
and I wanted to inaugurate a venue that would give similar welcome and shelter to literary art. I'm always coming across really good, unexpected submissions from authors I've never heard of, and that's very exciting. And we've already scheduled four stories from contributors who are new to noon for our 2022 edition. And we have debut fiction from a person, of course, I've never met, so I don't know if he's old or young, uh, Cullen McAndrews. So it's it's a very vibrant and terrific work to be doing. And do you think that there are more or, or fewer similar spaces for hard to categorize writing than there were 20 years ago? Have more magazines arrived similar to noon or do you, do you feel that it's more it's more necessary than ever because there aren't so many mm. well magazines come and go and editors come and go so I think it will always be a treacherous terrain it will always be hard to publish unconventional work or challenging fiction. So that's sad, but it makes what we do at noon seem uh, ever more pressing and important. And the team is very dedicated, and, and the response we've gotten is bracing, and, and so there. <laughs> we really enjoy it as well. Even with working virtually, the uh, the spirit is 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 still very very strong, and we at the LRB we're so pleased to to publish to publish your stories. Oh, well, thank you! It's a great yeah, honor so for that, me to be in your pages. Diane Williams, thank you very much. And now to finish, we're going to listen to Diane Williams reading her story, Harriet Mounts. Harriet Mounts. I was able to get Harriet Mounts to shriek and I think I must have thought any shriek would do. When she first stood there naked, I remember she was solemn, or she looked annoyed, or was she really pained? But she did seem to like me, the cues. She had really focused her eyes on me, and she had smiled while on her haunches by the hearth a bit earlier. Because she is a brunette, The sight of the crop of red hair above her pubis surprised me very much. So how do I put this? Her raptures aside, she lost interest in me quickly. Although she sent me notes and letters, she said she knew that the tragedy of losing her would be a shock for me, that I am always on her mind and in a nice way. That is... My personal sorrow is present for her. I should please accept her deepest sympathy that that she cannot help sending me her understanding sympathy. There was so much pleasure in store when I was a boy, and I was resourceful. Once a year, my brother and I sneaked into a fair 
where they handed out free samples of our favorite sweets, and we were gifted with these strips of aluminum from a toothpaste company. If you ran your thumbnail across the strip, you could hear a voice singing, Use Vedamicum. The woman sang the words quickly, or I could get her to croak this out slowly, over and over. You can read Diane Williams's story gladly in the latest issue of the LRB, along with T.J. Clark on Hieronymus Bosch, Neil Asherson on written and unwritten constitutions, Jenny Turner on Sybil Bedford, and Catherine Rundle considers the stork. You can find some of Diane Williams' other stories and listen to her reading them in the LRB's online archive.